Hello, everyone. We are back with the latest edition of the Arbury Road podcast here on this lovely sunny Monday evening in Valencia, at least. I'm joined today, as always, by Paco. And this time we're also joined by Catherine Rogers, another Arbury Road regular. How are you guys doing? Yeah, everything good, yeah. Catherine? Yep, thanks for having me. Fantastic. Short and sweet. Let's get to it. Um, so the first really disappointing bit of news we've seen this week, um, you might have seen a video we put up on our, our social networks earlier about it, is that Erdogan has announced that Turkey are going to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention on the Protection of Violence Against Women. Okay, obviously this is a terrible, terrible decision he's made. It sends an awful message to pretty much everyone in the world that they don't care about women in Turkey. They prefer to prioritize their traditional values. Paco, what have you got to say on the topic? Uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's not too much of a surprise, I would say. Like, I mean, uh, the Erdogan for years has proven to uh, not do not care about like you know uh, human rights democracy i mean the authoritarian tendency of course turkey um, are alarming and of course is a situation that if we look back at you know uh, the early 2000 when turkey you know was applying around 2005 to join uh, the european union and actually there was the possibility to sort of uh, include turkey in sort of uh, western european sphere of uh, interest in terms of uh, human rights and of uh, um, protection of human rights. Uh, well, now the situation is, of course, really bad. Uh, I repeat the stuff, uh, the statistics that uh, Georgia, in uh, an effective video, mentioned that uh, you know in Turkey, like about 35. Actually, I was reading even 38 percent of women suffer from violence during their life, against a European average of 25 percent. Like so, the European average is already really. Uh, high, and despite the um, Istanbul Convention, the the Turkey stat is incredibly alarming. Like it means four women out of ten suffer basically from violence at a certain point in their life from their intimate partner. So uh, the violence happened often in the house, and uh, more than three hundred feminicides only in uh, two thousand and twenty. So uh, yeah, I think these numbers talks. Uh, they, they don't need comments. Uh, yeah, it's really alarming. The, let's see what Catherine thinks as a woman. And uh... yeah, I mean, obviously, it's I, I agree. It's it's extremely alarming and totally not unexpected, you know, from mm -hmm. Erdogan. But I guess, I mean, it's sickening, but not surprising that well, you know, we need to withdraw from this treaty if we're going to defend our you know traditional family in it because. We fully recognize that the traditional family unit is based on physical and sexual violence against women. Um, so I mean, yeah, it's horrible. But I guess the other thing that I think about this is that, you know, it was only possible for this to happen because of the changes that have been made in the parliamentary institutions, right? That Erdogan has this new power. Um, and so I think it's an instance of, you know, okay, like some of our democratic institutions might not be great, but they do prevent things like this from happening. Um, so I think that that's a, it's a, yeah, something for us to think about when it comes to uh, designing institutions as well. 
Yeah, it's a really good point because people often, I mean, people criticize a lot of these conventions, this international law, soft law, if you will. But at the end of the day, it can hold countries to a certain standard. And I mean, if you're not holding countries to the standard of not committing to not perpetrating violence against women and girls, what sort of standard are you holding them to? Mm. But on that note, I'd also like to call out the six member states of the European Union who haven't ratified the convention. Bulgaria, Latvia, Lithuania, Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic never ratified the convention. They still don't apparently believe in putting pen to paper on committing to not perpetrating violence against women. So it's not just Turkey. And um, let's not forget also those members which are actually uh, also leaving the, or talking about leaving the, the Istanbul Convention, of course, and all the problems that there are in Poland, what we discussed this widely, uh, both in Poland and in Hungary, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, I would say though that there, there you can see that to a certain extent the European Union can make a difference, like in the sense uh, in which also these countries are on a similar path to Turkey, but the fact of mid-member, I would say, I hope, <laughs> will prevent this from happening. And uh, here, you know, here is where we need to really see something new from the European Union. We need to see some real pressure. Uh, again, we discussed this. Uh, but like uh, the European Union seems to be able to put pressure only when it, uh, it comes to economics. Mm-hmm. You know, when there is austerity measures to apply here, we're talking about something way more important. We're talking about human rights. We're talking about fundamental rights and about the same uh, pillars of our society. And here is where I think is a fundamental moment for the European Union in general in the next five to 10 years if we will be able to impose a certain uh, you know, model of society, of civilization, of rights, then the European Union uh, will stand. Otherwise, if it's only an economic union, I think we are doomed to collapse in my vision. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, same, it's the same problem, as you mentioned, Paco, it's the same problem in Turkey as it is in Poland. It's just Islam instead of Christianity. It's the prioritization of traditional Christian or Islamic values over the fundamental rights of half the people in, in the population. It's an absolute disgrace. Um, yeah, hopefully more, hopefully EU countries don't follow Turkey out of the convention and hopefully those last six member states who haven't ratified it do quickly. Um, just on a, on a slightly more positive and related note, um, we saw over the last couple of months that a lot of towns in Poland have declared themselves to be LGBT free zones where trans people, gay people, lesbians, whatever else, aren't welcome. Now, the EU, the European Parliament has responded to this by passing a resolution that declares the entire European Union an area of freedom for LGBTQ people, which is symbolic it's not binding law but it's good to see that they can respond in kind to these these um also non-binding uh resolutions in that we saw in poland so that's something it's not much but it's it's something okay let's get on to the the main topic i want to discuss today which is something we mentioned last week and that is that spain is planning to trial a four-day working week so the trial should affect 30 to 60,000 workers they're going to use 50 euro from the euro, from 50 euro. They're going to use 50 million euro from European Union funding to 
help the companies continue to pay the same salary to the workers without a reduction in working hours. So they'll work four days, 32 hour weeks for the same salary. You two welfare experts, Catherine, I'm going to start with you first here. Uh, what do we think of this initiative? Is it all good? Are there any potential bad downsides? Is it going to be one of these policies that massively aids people who have the flexibility and the ability to work less and then doesn't really help the working class? Give us your thoughts on the whole, the whole project. I mean, I'm in favor of uh, a shortened working, working hours, whether that means a four day week or a shortened working day. In general, we should be reaping the benefits of technological change and automation and you know, uh, uh, productivity growth, which we did for a very long time. And by we, I mean workers uh, worked less for a very long time until you know, kind of the 80s and things have stagnated. Um, so I'm 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 in favor, and I think it's good for a number of reasons. Although I can see where there are challenges, both you know in implementing the pilot, but also kind of um, in in general, right? But I would say the main benefits are <laughs> it, it allows people to be more people. I mean, it has we, we talk about kind of defending fundamental human rights, but the right to have free time, to spend time with our families, to be whole human beings is the most important thing just for people's well-being. And even if it was only good for people's well-being, I would support it. But that also flows on to an impact on productivity, right? I mean, people who sort of feel more whole are more well-rested, more uh, satisfied in their lives are better workers. And this isn't just an idea, like it's shown that countries where people work less, like I'm in, uh, based in Sweden, here in Scandinavia, the working day is shorter, but people are more productive at work. So I think that it's quite clear that there are both sort of welfare benefits for individuals, but also productivity benefits just at work. You know, and on top of that, with all of this free time that people now have, what are they going to do? Go out and go to restaurants and participate in society and buy things, right? I mean, I think I can see that it, if done on a whole of society scale, it has huge potential benefits, both you know, for individuals' well-being, but also for the economy. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into potential cons, but uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I have a couple. Like off the top of my head, the only issues I'm I'm also in favor of a four-day working week. I'd I'd love a two-day working week if that was a thing. Um, the issues, I, the issues I'd see, sorry, Paco, just before we move on, before we go a little deeper into the pros, let's say. If you have a three day weekend, you've got three days where there's nobody working in the company. If you have it so that there's the two day weekend and a changing a weekday day that people take off, this could be slightly difficult in organizing work that's based in groups, let's say. Of course, if I'm a worker for a company and all my work is individual work, there's no problem. But that's not the way companies generally work. There's a lot of teamwork. There's a lot of cooperation. I could see this being potentially affected. Also, there's the argument that pretty much every country is about to or is already in a really serious recession. Is this the right time? Paco, do you want to chime in? Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, I, I agree with most of what Catherine, with everything Catherine said. Uh, yeah, I, I would answer to this question that exactly because we are in a recession is perhaps time to... The perfect time. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apply some uh, brave measures. Some measures. Uh, so uh, first of all, I think there is a question that we need to select: is uh, how much people are actually working. Uh, there is this stats from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, which says that an average U.S. Uh, worker works about 8.8 hours per day, so almost nine hours. In fact, there are, but uh, though uh, research says that actually the actual time of work is about less than three hours. The, the time you're actually spending working is two hours, 50, uh, 53 minutes. That's what they found. Now, I don't know if this is the exact number. Of course, uh, research is still inconclusive. But I would say that this is more realistic if we think, and I think in every kind of work, at the amount of time that we actually spend in doing, uh, really engaging the activity that is way lower than even what we realize. And of course, on this, the impact of social network and all the rest, like there is a, a lot of research about that. So. This is the first point to start with. Like, I think we are still suffering from the illusion of an old model where, you know, like you had to work hard and work yourself into the grave to demonstrate something. Uh, but in fact, as Catherine was saying, uh, all the studies about productivity demonstrates that actually working less, you end up, especially in the long run, long run to be way more productive. So, and on this, I think, is something that in general needs to make us reflect uh, about societal change and how, because there is a recession now, certain change needs to happen. As you were saying, like, it's not necessarily the four, the three day, the three day weekend or the four day week, like, could be another model, could be working four hours per day, five, even less, hopefully, in future. <laughs> no, but uh, the, the point being that, uh, uh, that that depends. You can choose uh, different, uh, different models. I think, overall, the, the real point is that really goes together with something that partially the pandemic and partially general tendency in the world are generating in terms of societal change, which is an increase in automatization and uh, you know, robotization of the pro productive circle. So the actual amount of work uh, we will need is going to be lower. And this should be a good thing, not a bad thing, like, you know, because most of the people are, you know, we, we can present it as a bad thing in the terms of only some certain people will work and other people won't, won't have anything to do and unemployment will grow. Or we can think about it in terms of, we all work less, we all enjoy our life, we all, start to think about our lives as a society, not as based on work anymore, or completely on work. Like work is a part of your life, but needs to be together with other experiences, which will make you grow as an individual and as a person and as a human being. And so I think this is really the, the, the right direction. So the Spanish uh, experiment is really interesting. Uh, and I, if I'm not wrong, it's the first real experiment on that scale. It's the first government-backed uh, project in Europe, at least. I know there have been experiments. I mean, Microsoft did it in Japan in 2019. Shake Shack did it in the US in 2019. There yeah. was a project going back as far as 2018 in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah, and all of reading, these were successful projects. Yeah, I was reading the stats about the Japan problem project, actually, you were mentioning. And they, they were saying around 
almost 40% of increase in productivity of the workers. So that's really big. But so we, we can think about this, like uh, we will see the stats after the Spanish experiment, if they will uh, actually confirm the research. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it goes without saying that this will have an impact on the economy. We will have more people working if this is the direction we take. Like, so work, you know, there is an Italian uh, slogan that is actually from the sixties, uh, working less, working everyone. Like, so everyone needs to work, even if we work less. Uh, and I mean, it goes without saying that if everyone works, the economy as a whole will be more, uh, you know, you will have more consumers, more uh, sort of in a Keynesian sense of multiplier, like more transactions, more, uh, and everything should be, um, the, the economy should be really uh, increasing, growing. Catherine, anything to add there? No, I mean, I completely uh, agree. I guess it's it's all about implementation as well, right? And I'm sure, well, I'm not, I can't say I'm sure, but I strongly anticipate that this, this pilot will support you know, the studies so far, right? But then it's about making sure that we don't sort of make a four day week for people who work in certain types of industries and then everyone who's working in service industries still has to, you know, work more for less money and, uh, you know, in a different way. So I think there's certainly challenges when it comes to spreading the benefits of working less to everybody who has, everybody who works in all types of jobs. Um, and, and that will take more thinking, right? Um, but, you know, full steam ahead, sounds good to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning the challenges, but I mean, these, these things are always changing. There are gonna be challenges facing up every new policy, every new suggestion. It's not a reason not to try. And when you've seen successful projects pretty much across the board, across the world that have tried a similar trial like this, we should absolutely be pushing, pumping more money into trying, trying out this scheme. Um, all right. So next up, okay, we want to talk a bit about the vaccines, but first, I think it's worth mentioning. Um, there were general elections in the Netherlands over the weekend. Um, the caretaker prime minister, Mark Rutte, who we, we highlighted here a couple of months ago when his entire cabinet quit in disgrace. Well, they've won the election again. Um, so they will probably be going into coalition with the centrists who are the D66 party who became the second biggest. But the good news from our point of view is the emergence of Volta, a pro-European anti-populist party that are composed mainly of young professionals and students won, their, won three parliamentary seats, which is their best ever election results. So we look forward to, to seeing more of them and maybe even collaborating with them Hopefully, in the what do you think, Paco? Yeah, podcast would be interesting. Perhaps we can try to. Uh, yeah, we, we we miss an expert in uh, politics in the Netherlands at the moment, so like definitely try to that, uh, worth trying to contact them. It's a really interesting one because generally, right wing right wing populism has a place in Dutch politics and is usually usually have good elections. So it's great to see. The left wing, the left wing having a good, having a good um, elections. Okay, let's get on to the vaccine. So uh, yesterday, one of the European commissioners said that the EU do not need Russian vaccines. So my immediate response to that is, how can you say that given the mess that we're in? We have commitments with 
producers who haven't held up their side of the bargain. We have cases skyrocketing across half the, half the continent. And it just seems like it's anti-Russian sentiment at the worst possible time. Catherine, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it seemed to me that the certainly national leaders in the EU were trying to depoliticize this. You know, obviously people didn't, thankfully governments and, and, and the EU didn't want to, to bring in a vaccine before it had been proved efficacious. And that was a good thing, right? But at the same time, sort of once it has been, there seemed to be um, a willingness to diffuse that political tension, but this has kind of gone the other way. And I think if you put it on top of, you know, what's going on in Slovakia and the kind of political crisis there around purchasing Russian vaccines and how this is seen as, you know, um, anti-West or not pro-West or whatever, it seems to become becoming more politicized, which is not a good thing because this is a health crisis that we need to deal with. Like, um, and as you say, it, it's not like we've got enough doses for everybody in Europe to cure, right? So. Too early to say that we don't need Russian vaccines. Yeah, big time. Paco? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I agree uh, in general terms, of course. Then uh, when it comes to the Sputnik, there are some doubts, I guess, that have well, been you now uh, have found that it's, by the... The EU have, have declared it effective. You know, they said, oh, it's, yeah. okay to, it's okay to use, it's effective enough, but we're still not going to take it. Yeah, no, no, it, see, it seems definitely uh, to be worth, uh, I know that in Italy they're thinking about producing it. Uh, yeah, I, I would say like here, the, the general problem in my vision is, apart from all the mass, uh, AstraZeneca, is, is it effective, is not, uh, there is always this sort of giant bureaucratic machine of the European Union, which seems to be, again, seems because we are still, through the process, but like if compared, for example, the UK, you know, that was definitely uh, not a good uh, image for Europe, like not a good, uh, uh, the, the fact that the UK were able to, uh, they are basically, well, if we look at the data, the UK right now, there are really few cases, uh, they are uh, going down so much. And uh, so that's definitely not a good uh, uh, spot for the, the EU. To me, the real question here is, why and this is something we need to ask i think for the future and i think the the answer is we need more political union why the european union was not able to produce its own vaccine why are we do we need to decide between you know american multinationals and uh, you know countries of like russia or china who are not democratic why you know we i think we have the resources we have the intelligence to uh, you know be uh, just decide our own destiny without relying on other people. And especially because, again, going back to the example of Cuba, uh, the vaccine should be free and for everyone. It should be produced by the state, in my opinion, not by a multinational or in a state process, sort of. Uh, would you, process would, controlled by the state in a situation like this. Would you rather a free vaccine from an authoritarian state like Cuba, though, Paco? Well, you know, like uh, my, my heart is red, so <laughs> no, no, I, I, hope part, like, I hope it's not that red. I hope it's <laughs> not that red. Yeah, it's true. Um, I, I think it depends, you know, like in terms of like now Cuba, there is a one question if we talk about the regime and politics, authoritarianism, and then of course it's something 
uh, we can at the present moment of course condemn another thing is we look at the cuban revolution in a historical perspective uh, another thing if we, if we look about uh, public health for example that is something that in cuba is excellent has been excellent for the past uh, 30 40 years like it has been a model for other countries and uh, they have been exporting doctors and providing free uh, medicare to everyone and of course like you know we're talking about something different but like in the us we know there is no healthcare, and uh, people uh, despite the us being incredibly richer than cuba no so uh, my answer is like yeah that the, you know is not black and white in a way like it's uh, if we think about welfare the cuba is way more advanced than the us that's definitely debatable. <laughs> that is definitely debatable. Healthcare-wise, okay, the US, they're not leading anyone anywhere, definitely. Um, but I don't know if Cuba would be the, the model. Having said that, they do produce world-leading doctors regularly from Cuba. This is a, a very well-known well -known fact. Um, I was talking about the healthcare, not as a general, as a model. Like I was talking specifically about the healthcare. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I don't think we're going to get too many answers on the vaccines, but uh, yeah, the commission have said that they have enough doses that in theory, we could all be vaccinated by the by Bastille Day, the 14th of July. I've written that down because I do not believe it. And we will be back on the 15th of July bringing this up, I'm sure, no doubt. But for today, I think we're going to leave it there on the vaccines and we're going to take this opportunity to remind everyone and to invite everyone to an important event that we're running a live stream on Thursday, where we're going to be speaking to two co-authors of a new book that's investigating crisis management and crisis reaction in the world, focusing on the European Union's reaction to COVID, the vaccine rollout, everything. And we're also going to be joined by one of the world leading experts on crisis management. So anyone who wants to join us for that, we're going to be live streaming Thursday at 6.30 Central European time. And the video will be there for the following weeks as well. So please join us and you'll see the invite, invites on Facebook. And thanks a million to Paco and Catherine. That was a really, really nice chat as always. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. Take care, guys. Bye bye.